This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. The Michigan State Police report says the original investigators did identify some persons of interest, but had not enough information on any of them for an arrest. Chief Davis of the Reed City Police Department said on a recent TV spot that there was no true suspect. Could it have been somebody with an infatuation with her? Yes. Is that a possibility? Yes. Months, years, decades passed, and still to this day, no arrests, no charges, not even a suspect. There is no true suspect at this point. I think we have more hope than we did 10 years ago with people calling in the activity. Hope for a break in the investigation, maybe even a deathbed confession, something to solve Jeanette's horrific murder once and for all. I still think there's a 50-50 chance. I'm not going to lean one way or the other because my hope is that we can put closure to this. I can only tell you, based on the Michigan State Police report, who they went at pretty hard in the early days and years of the investigation. I have no idea if any of these folks are still on the list, although Detective Pratt himself told me when I interviewed him that he rules out no one until there is an arrest. The initial fingerprint list that they put together was comprised of the following people. Christopher Cassavetes, that would be senior. He was a customer who lived in the area. I spoke to his son, Christopher Cassavetes Jr., and he told me that his father was in to make a purchase that day. His name never came up again in the report. All of the employees were printed, including Flossie, both Dave and Bonnie Ingalls, John Ingalls, the store manager, Donna Evans, another employee, Angie Tilly, the clerk who found Jeanette, and a man named David Sandlin, who was a part-time employee. According to his wife, he only worked there on truck delivery days. Early on, he was compelled to turn over some clothing, so it appears he may have gotten something on them that looked like blood. His name also never comes up again in the report. Also on that initial fingerprint list were Reed City Officer Theodore Platts, Ralph Fisher, Jeanette's father, and a man named George Wilson, who I learned was an indigent man that the locals called Injun George. George Wilson, a.k.a. Injun George, was interviewed by Detective Pratt, and his name came up a great deal when I spoke with Reed City residents regarding this case. I found that for the most part, people generally pointed a finger in his direction because he was a local eccentric who collected bottles and cans and was generally odd enough to make people uncomfortable. None of the people I have just mentioned appear to have been treated as suspects, at least as far as I can see, 
and certainly not to the extent that the ones we will discuss in a minute were. As far as employees go, anyone who was at work that day was literally at the crime scene. If their alibi is that they were at work when the murder occurred, they would remain on the persons of interest list, unless there was some other way to verify that they had not gone down, killed Jeanette, and then somehow cleaned up and remained in the store, acting as if nothing had happened until someone found her body. I asked a few people in and around law enforcement at the time if any of the employees were looked at as hard as the suspects that I will discuss in a minute, and no one could recall that they had been. Detective Southworth told me that he didn't recall any of the employees being looked at hard as far as being suspects. That doesn't mean it wasn't done. Detective Pratt could have been doing a whole lot of things behind the scenes that didn't end up in his official report. Sometimes with small towns, and when you have a lot of law enforcement entities with their hands in the pot, there are certain things you have to do quietly so that word does not get around. There was a lot of talk and loose lips in the beginning of this investigation, as I learned when multiple people told me that they had heard specifics about injuries from Officer Finkbeiner, specifics that would only have come from someone who had seen Jeanette's body. Because of that, it is a distinct possibility that a lot of the investigation that was done wasn't put into the official reports and perhaps is documented somewhere in Detective Pratt's personal files. So that's something we have to think about. The employees were all questioned by Detective Pratt on multiple occasions. They called them back quite a few times, certainly as witnesses, because they would have been there all day. And they were all re-questioned by Detectives Albright and Vincent on the second go-around. In fact, after Detectives Albright and Vincent had gone through re-questioning all of the witnesses and persons of interest that had been initially developed, they were ordered to go back to all of the employees again and re-interview them in 1986 at the behest of Lieutenant Robert Smith of the 6th District Headquarters. As to whether any of their names remain on the persons of interest list today, I cannot say. To date, the only person on the list who has been ruled out publicly is Jeanette's husband, Alvin Robertson. Now we're going to spend some time on the people who were treated like persons of interest or suspects. And by that, I mean they were thoroughly investigated, multiple witnesses were interviewed about them, background reports were done, and over a period of months and years, they were looked at and re-interviewed. They also all gave fingerprint and hair samples at some point. DNA was not readily collected back then, but they did test blood for type and secretor versus non-secretor attributes for elimination purposes in some cases. So we will begin with Alvin. Of course they looked at Jeanette's husband. He was the first person they looked at. That's how it works. Police always start with the people closest to the victim and work outward, like ripples in a lake when you toss in a stone. This is what a co-worker of his, named Al, told me about Alvin. I worked with Alvin when the shop was in Reed City and met Jeanette a couple of times. 
I typically picked on her about her southern accent. After the shop moved to Marion, I worked in the same area with Al. We became closer friends. The day she was murdered, I saw it on the news at home and I called him. I remember telling him I wanted to make sure it was not his wife. And he told me that it was. So I drove into town and sat with him a while. When I left, I went downtown and told the police that they should at least send someone to tell him what was going on because he was completely in the dark. I don't remember if it was the next day or the following day, but they came to question me at work. I remember them asking questions about him, mostly what type of guy he was. But the thing I remember most was them asking about paint that we used at work. At the time, we used a lot of red paint, and I'm sure it was on his shoes. He told me later that they took his work boots. I think they wanted to know about red paint to rule out what was on the top of his boots. I also remember him having to leave work early one day to give them a hair sample. He was concerned about it and said that there was a chance his hair might be on Jeanette because they slept in the same bed and used the same brush. What seems like months later, a different officer came to work and did the interview again. No questions about paint this time. They pretty much asked my relationship with him and basically asked if I thought he was capable of such a thing. I remember telling them, at the time, during lunch, something had come on the radio about a random, dumb killing. Alvin started crying and said something to the effect of, Has the whole world gone fucking crazy? Alvin and I became closer friends after that. We worked on cars together, things like that, until they moved away to Georgia. What I was left with after Al Foote's recollection is an image of Alvin Robertson sitting in the apartment and looking at his children after finding out that his wife is dead. And he's wondering what he's supposed to be doing because he has no frame of reference for what's happening right now. What do I do? What am I supposed to be doing right now? So he's just sitting there paralyzed wondering, like Al said, has the whole world gone fucking crazy? picture him there. Remember as I write this that he's been ruled out as a suspect. So picture this guy who you now know did not kill his wife. Think about the scenario differently. Think of it as your brother or dad or nephew or son. How must he have felt? In the span of a day he was suddenly a single parent with two young children. His wife had been brutally murdered and everyone in town thought he did it. It's easy to speculate. Of course the husband did it. I heard that more times than I can count while researching this case. The first time I spoke with Reed City Police Chief Chuck Davis, even he told me that the overriding feeling in law enforcement was that Alvin had done it. He told me that at one point they thought Alvin was close to confessing, but someone walked into the room and Alvin clammed up. I heard that story from one other person too, and I'm not sure where they got it, because it does not appear to be the case. Chief Davis told me there were numerous things that led him to believe it could have been him, including him leaving town with the babysitter. Chief Davis told me that the general profile of a crime, like the one perpetrated upon Jeanette, 
revenge was the word he used, was done by someone who was intimate with the victim. But he did say that it could also have been someone that she had turned down. Chief Davis worked for the Osceola County Sheriff's Department at the time of the murder, but he wasn't on duty on January 19, 1983. To his credit, when we spoke the first time at the Reed City Police Department, he probably hadn't looked at that file in years, and I have no indication that he ever worked the case personally prior to that. So what he told me about Alvin was most likely the impression that he had been left with over the years by his peers in law enforcement, having not been part of the investigation himself. I spoke to Detective Southworth, and he told me that he also believed Alvin was on the verge of confessing at some point, and thought Alvin was the likely perp, at least at the time. He said there were a few things that made him believe Alvin was the perpetrator, including his demeanor on the day of the murder and how he left town. Southworth did tell me, though, that he recalled Detective Pratt not being convinced that Alvin had killed his wife, and he recalled it was based in part on the types of injuries that she sustained. Lauren Thorson did recall that they got what eventually turned out to be a set of prints that matched Alvin's from a countertop at the opposite end of the room from where she was found. Multiple people said that Alvin was in the store that day, and these folks were also quick to note that that wasn't normal. Flossie told me that she didn't remember him ever coming in, and she didn't even remember him coming in on that day. But let me pose a theory here, and you are perfectly within your rights to completely disregard it. If Jeanette had, in fact, been getting obscene phone calls, as reported to Prosecutor Talaski, and there was someone coming into the pet department bothering her, maybe Alvin was checking in on his wife. Maybe he wanted to show up when the person came in. It may have been odd for him to stop into the store, but it was noted early in the Michigan State Police report that Alvin was laid off from his job for that week, so he wasn't working. Maybe he had nothing better to do that day. Also, Flossie had told me that Jeanette got a phone call early in the day, and as she recalled it, Jeanette had to go up to the school to pick up one or both of her children. At least that's what Jeanette had told them. If that's the case, maybe once she returned, she called Alvin to bring her lunch because she would be unable to leave again, as was her routine, since she had already left the store once that day. I did confirm that she always left the store for lunch and often ate with her mother, Marion Fisher. Many people pointed to the fact that Alvin left town right after the murder as evidence of his guilt. That's something I am happy to clear up right now. He didn't leave town right after the murder. In fact, he left Michigan in September of 1983, eight months after the murder of his wife, according to the Michigan State Police report. Now, maybe I'm naive, but if you're an innocent man and you know you're innocent because you didn't do it, eight months probably does feel like a sufficient amount of time to subject yourself to repeated questioning from police, town gossip, and the breathtakingly painful proximity to where your wife was brutally slain. So I'll do it because I don't think anyone else will. I apologize for everyone who thought it, everyone who said it, and for the entire town of Reed City thinking it. 
because somebody should. While I understand from an investigative standpoint that what was done had to be done, I'm sorry for everything you were forced to endure. I'm sorry you lost your wife and your children lost their mother. Mr. Robertson, I'm so sorry. Next, we're going to talk about Dale. Dale was a teenager who lived in the same apartment complex as Jeanette and visited her in the store often. In fact, according to Marion Fisher, he came by Jeanette's apartment with a friend on the day she was murdered. About Dale and what his relationship was with Jeanette, I got everything on the spectrum from he had a crush on her to one gentleman who lived near Upton at the time of the murder telling me that Dale had once told him that he'd spent the night with her. Because we're talking about a teenager, we have to remember that they often say and do things that aren't all that smart, and that will play into his story in just a moment. It seems, based on this story I heard from Chris Cassavetes, whose father had been in the store that day, that it got around the apartment complex pretty quickly. Chris told me that on January 19, 1983, he was going to a friend's house after school around 5 or so. One of the friends had heard a blurb on the 5 o'clock news about a murder down at Gamble's, and when Chris got there, they were all revved up to find out what had happened. They wanted Chris to go down and ask Jeanette about it because they knew he was friends with her. So he put on his coat and headed over to Jeanette's. He said to me, Thank God the little Langworthy girl intercepted me. She was running towards me from Jenny's house. Jenny is Jeanette's daughter. And she said, Chris, Jenny's mom is dead. Chris wasn't questioned at the time of the murder, but he was questioned when he was living out of town with relatives a couple years later. He said some state police showed up, and their questions were mostly about Dale. Apparently, Dale had made a wanted poster over at the career center in computer class and hung it in his bedroom window. A wanted poster. He hung it in his window, where everyone in town could see it. Chris took this as jestful, but it seems as though Dale felt that police thought he had killed Jeanette and he was feeling the pressure, so he acted out like awkward teenagers tend to do in situations where they have no idea how they're supposed to be acting, nor do they fully appreciate the possible ramifications of their impulsivity. I mean, how would you act if this older girl that you had a crush on got murdered? One of his buddies probably should have, and likely did, tell him that putting a wanted poster in his bedroom window for the whole apartment complex to see was probably not the best way to go. Having heard that teens from the apartment complex seemed to gravitate toward Jeanette's apartment, I asked Chris if people generally hung out there, and he said yes, she was very friendly, and they just were sort of all in and out. Mark Truman told me that he thought Jeanette acted differently around Dale than other people. I didn't find anything in the report to suggest that Dale had been in the store that day, though. Police did interview his high school principal as well as the administrators at the Career Center, where he went off campus for part of the day. Mark Truman told me that he did remember Dale being at school that day because he saw him. In January of 1984, Dale gave finger and palm prints for comparison purposes and the report notes that at that time no additional information was gleaned in the interview Detective Pratt did since his last interview in February of 1983. 
The final notation made in 1985 was a list of four items in manila envelopes with the notation, The above items were obtained on January 4, 1984, and submitted to the Bridgeport Crime Lab on October 9, 1985. It looks like they had the samples they needed and they were trying to rule him out. Next, we're going to talk about Lee Peterson, and this subject is a bit sensitive. On January 23, 1984, one year almost to the day after the murder of Jeanette Robertson, information came in from an anonymous source. Quote, the source feared that he may have been involved in the homicide of the victim in this case. The source said that the subject had returned to the area two weeks before Christmas in 1982 and was staying with a relative. The relative's information was given, and the report notes that the residence in question is the same apartment complex as Jeanette and her family live. Quote, the victim's rear entrance of her apartment faced the same courtyard which the front entrance of the family member's apartment faced. According to the anonymous source, the subject remained living with this relative until a day or two after Christmas, at which time he moved to an apartment complex that was less than a mile from the victim's apartments. Multiple people were questioned in January about Lee Peterson. Lee graduated from Reed City High School and had been in the Army. Vietnam, and was honorably discharged. He had family in the area. The other thing you need to know about Lee Peterson is that he was mentally ill. I spoke to a woman who worked at an adult foster care facility in the area who said that he had terrorized multiple women who worked at the foster home for months. He would come and bang on the wall or the garage door. After a while, he started showing up around where the women lived. He'd been seen walking around the immediate area of each of their homes. According to the woman I spoke to, he was stalking them, at least three other women in addition to her, and they all worked at the same foster care facility. These women were interviewed according to the Michigan State Police report. She described Peterson as handsome, aggressive, and he would be walking down the street near her house, talking to himself like he was having a violent conversation. When I asked her how that all ended, she told me that one night he was apprehended in Paris, Michigan. She said the place was lit up like crazy. She wasn't sure what became of Lee Peterson after that, but her understanding was that he was put in a mental hospital as the result of this apprehension. There is a notation about this in the report. Detective Pratt visited him at a hospital to question him about Jeanette's murder. The connection here is that Lee's mother once owned the Gamble store, and it's possible that they even found his prints in the basement. When I tried to nail Detective Pratt down about this, he would only say that you cannot date fingerprints. So just because you found someone's print at the scene does not mean they were the perpetrator. And also, on the other side of that coin, not finding someone's prints there does not necessarily exclude them. The ex-wife of Lee Peterson verified that he was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic at the Kalamazoo Hospital while they were married. She remembered police coming to ask her questions about Lee in the 1980s, but had no idea what it was in reference to. She assumed it was due to him being in and out of mental institutions since as early as 1977. She said police were only there for a short time and never gave her any information other than asking him about his personality. 
she said this. He beat my daughter black and blue from her neck down and was charged with child abuse and never saw her again. She said he would never stay on his medications and that he was absolutely capable of violence. According to her, he was very sick. The whole conversation made me sad for everyone involved, and it quickly became apparent why police went at Lee Peterson so hard. He definitely looks good on paper for the murder. He's got a history of violence. He's familiar with the physical location where the murder occurred. He was in Reed City during the appropriate time frame. But the question is, could they link him to the crime scene on the day of the murder? Whether or not he was capable of violence, I had seen no evidence that put Lee Peterson at the scene of Jeanette's murder that day at all. On October 8, 1984, Detective Pratt traveled with Eldon Whitford, a local social worker, to Traverse City State Hospital. They met with a caseworker and psychiatrist to discuss Lee's ability to be questioned about the murder. Detective Pratt was told that Lee could differentiate between right and wrong and would be aware of what happened in January 1983. They were told that talking with him would not or should not upset him, and if he had committed the murder and wanted to talk, he could. Lee was interviewed in the remarks at the end of the supplemental describing the event reads, quote, nothing learned up to this point in this investigation can eliminate or verify him as a suspect. Another reason that they would be taking a hard look at Lee is because of the assault itself. The overkill aspect, the manic use of multiple weapons, all of that could point to someone who is mentally ill. Specific to schizophrenia, when the patient is prone to going off his medications, basic elements of what a crime scene is or isn't, based on generalities, can get thrown out the window. Things like motive can be harder to figure out when the motive is nothing more than the illness of a person in the throes of a dissociative or psychotic episode. That makes it a bit harder to read a crime scene. I want to pause here in telling Lee's story with regard to the Robertson murder and say something important. There's pain, and then there's an abyss from which some people never return. Most of us cannot fathom that kind of confusion and despair. And in cases like this, it is best to do what good humans do and try to empathize rather than judge. I should note that I have people with mental illness in my family. I have a cousin who was schizophrenic and killed himself. It is from this perspective that I can look at someone and understand that the person and the illness are two different things, while physically they will always be bound together. When you're talking about someone who is mentally ill, you're talking about someone who is dealing with something profound that they did not ask for, nor do they want? None of what I just said, however, means that people with mental illness cannot commit horrible crimes. They can, and do, and should be held to account like anyone else as the law allows. I do think it's important to note that people with mental illness are at a far greater risk of being the victim of a crime than the perpetrator. So with that said, here's where Lee's story goes from there, from that hospital where he stayed for some unknown time, until August 25, 1996, 
13 years after the death of Jeanette Robertson, a man named Bernard Rouse walked into the Cadillac Police Department and said that he had found a man lying dead with a knife beside him. An officer was sent to the scene and found the body of Lee Peterson in his apartment. The door was unlocked. The report included a list of evidence taken from the scene, descriptions of what was to be photographed, brief descriptions of how the officers handled the scene, and two other incident reports involving Lee Peterson, one in March and one in May of the same year, 1996, prior to his death. The report in March was a citation for a noisy muffler and excessive fumes. The incident on May 16, 1996, was a suspicious situation and a well-being check. Officers were dispatched to check on a subject that may have fallen and injured himself. Quote, Initial contact with Lee Peterson required the fire department and EMS to assist, as he had an apparent injury, dried blood near his ear, and his mattress was smoldering. Lee was in need of mental health, yet he refused treatment. He was disoriented, overactive, talking in confused sentences, and wanting to preach the Christian way. Neighbors stated that he had mental problems in the past, but this was far more serious behavior. The first responders to Lee Peterson's apartment had wisely called in an evidence team from Grand Rapids to handle the scene in the interest of thoroughness. They knew what the scene looked like, but they needed to make sure there wasn't anything suspicious involved. So they took every possible precaution to make sure it was a suicide, given that on paper, 80-something stab wounds doesn't sound like suicide. Yes, I said 80-something stab wounds. But when you get a look at the images, you quickly get a picture of what occurred. Errant pills scattered around the apartment, fine blood spatter on the hallway walls, bathroom floor, and kitchen counter and floor. The victim laying on the floor in the living room area, fully dressed, with what appears to be tears in his shirt over his left chest area. The officers took great care in documenting the entire scene, and it seems clear that whatever occurred during Lee Peterson's last day, it took a little while. He was wandering around that apartment, clearly not in his right mind, based on the scrawled suicide note found in the kitchen drawer, which contains not even one complete, meaningful sentence. But the autopsy photos of the stab wounds tell most of the story. They are almost all superficial. I would call them scratches or nicks. Cops would probably call them hesitation wounds. Secondary causes of death according to the death certificate are listed as pulmonary emphysema and haloperidol intoxication. The toxicology report lists the only other things other than the haloperidol found in his system were nicotine, ethanol or alcohol and caffeine. Lee Peterson was a very sick man who had served our country, and my first instinct is to wonder whether our mental health system failed him. I'd like to think that if he were alive today, he'd get better care, but I don't know if that's the case. You can't force someone who's living on their own to take their prescribed medication, and it's very common for people diagnosed with schizophrenia to stop taking their medications for various reasons, including not liking how it makes them feel. The report indicated that Lee was being supervised and had a home visit by a mental health worker just days before his death. The man had helped him get his pills together in a pillbox. 
yet it appears, based on what was in the container after he died, he hadn't been taking the appropriate dosage. In addition, the mental health worker noted that he had seen 20 or 30 tablets in the haloperidol bottle when he'd visited two days prior, but only the empty haloperidol bottle was found when the officers arrived. In the end, I was not able to locate even one person that could put Lee Peterson at the gamble store on the day Jeanette Robertson was murdered. Maybe that information is in a witness report somewhere. Clearly a lot was held back. But I think it's more likely that Michigan State Police looked at Lee Peterson because he had a history of erratic behavior and violence. He was in town when the murder occurred, and at that point, it was the best lead that they had. Police only started looking at him after an anonymous caller suggested they should, a full year after the murder. Chris Mills seems to me like an even more desperate lead, a young man who basically got swept up in a murder investigation because he had a vengeful ex-girlfriend, scratches on his face and hands, and had driven through Reed City the day Jeanette was murdered. In 1983, Chris Mills worked for Curtis Wire Products in Petoskey. He was a truck driver who hauled things like refrigerator wire and oven racks from Grand Rapids to Petoskey, which means he passed through Reed City by way of old Highway 131. It was a regular route for him and his partner who took turns driving the loads. When he drove that route, Chris would stop at a restaurant called Minier's for lunch. He said he had been stopping there for years, and based on his recollection of the events of January 19, 1983, he was there at approximately 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Earlier that day, Chris says he stopped at a business called Little Engines, which was on the south side of Reed City. They sold lawnmowers, chainsaws, and things like that. He had to park his rig across the street along the side of Old 131 because of its size. He was hauling a 47-foot trailer, and with the rig, he believes it was about 60 foot long. You can't just slide a vehicle that size into a spot and call it a day. There's a bit of planning involved. Chris mentioned that the name of the business, Curtis Wire, was on the truck in red and white, clearly visible. He assumed that's how they tracked him down as having been in town that day. Someone saw the truck, knew he'd passed through, and that's why police wanted to speak to him. Well, that's not exactly the case, based on the report. Cynthia Trowbridge, his ex-girlfriend, called in a tip. When I spoke to him, he didn't even appear to have put that together. Man, that was a bad time in my life, he said. I lived in Bel Air back then, and I had an ex who was stalking me. She was breaking into my house, and the police couldn't catch her. I even took out a restraining order, but that didn't help. Is this by any chance Ms. Trowbridge? I asked him. Yeah, how do you know that, he said. I told him that her name was in the report and that I was aware of her criminal history. So Chris said it started like this. One day he woke up and found a note on his door that said two detectives were looking to speak to him. He had no idea what it was about and at that time had not even heard of the murder in Reed City. Chris couldn't remember if the detectives called him or if he contacted them after seeing the note but they came to his home and asked him to come to the sheriff's department so they could talk to him. He was confused, and he didn't know what it was all about, 
but he went with them anyway. When they got to the sheriff's department, they told him his truck had been seen in Reed City around the time of the murder. They questioned him regarding his whereabouts on the day of the murder and then asked for a hair sample. Chris said that he believes they also took fingerprints. I should stop to note that I believe one of the items of evidence that the police had at the time from the crime scene was a hair found on Jeanette. So that's why they were collecting hairs from suspects, and I am told that they were collecting pulled head hair, chest hair, and pubic hair. The thing you need to remember about that is that we're talking about a dirty floor in a basement. So if they find hairs from someone who had admittedly been down there, any good defense attorney can explain it away by them saying that hair came off of them while they were down there. Just because they have certain evidence, physical evidence, does not mean that that will prove a slam dunk. In fact, in this case, every law enforcement officer that I've spoken to said, this is not a physical evidence case. So after they questioned Chris, he said they took him home. Not long after that, the detective showed up at a restaurant where he was with friends. They said they needed to talk to him again. Chris told me that it was embarrassing and he felt that they were being intimidating. He said they started following him around after that and it got so bad that he had to get a lawyer. I didn't know anything about a murder. I didn't even know where the store was and they kept talking about a basement. I asked them what kind of idiot would kill someone and then drive away in a truck that had their work name all over it. And where did they think I was supposed to park that truck in Reed City? Did they think I drove it up to the store, double parked, and then went in and killed somebody and nobody noticed? Chris mentioned that he had a scratch on his face, which they asked about. He told me that it was from a scuffle he had gotten into with Trowbridge. She had scratched his face. And he also said that his parents had some cats, so he had some scratches on his hands too. He said that he later found out Trowbridge told police that she had seen him washing blood out of a jacket. Yeah, I was, my hunting jacket he said to me. Chris was not aware of what the interaction between police and his employer was, but he was glad that they were a good company. He said, anyone else would have fired me between the cops asking questions and my stalker ex constantly calling me. In a strange twist of fate, the subject of the murder came up again years later. A year or so before I had contacted Chris, he had stopped at the Frankfurt True Value Hardware Store. He got to talking with a store owner who mentioned that he used to own a hardware store in Reed City. Chris said, not the one where the murder happened. He couldn't believe when the guy said yes. David Ingalls, who was the former owner of the Gamble store in Reed City, also owned the Frankfurt True Value store at the time. Chris said, I was shocked because here was this thing in my life again. I was just this hardworking guy who'd been in the wrong place at the wrong time and this thing that caused me and my parents such an emotional time and all that money, and here it is again popping up in my life. So we're talking and the manager says to me, oh, that case was solved. He told me it was the boyfriend or husband, something like that. I can't remember which, but he said it was solved. So that's why I was surprised when you contacted me and said it was still unsolved because he told me they solved it. So those are the people Alvin, Lee Peterson, Dale, Chris Mills, who the police spent the most time on in the three years after the murder. I don't have any documents after that. I have no idea where the investigation went, but those are the people that they looked at the hardest. 
I think that the most unjust thing that I have learned while researching Jeanette's murder is that law enforcement is under no obligation to disabuse the public of any notions about who we might erroneously believe to be the killer. Alvin and Lee were just two people associated with this case that certain locals were positive had killed Jeanette. One would think it easy enough for cops to publicly say, we ruled him out, but it's not something that they can always do. If they cannot positively eliminate or verify someone as the suspect, then they're left on the list until someone's arrested. If an arrest never happens, well, there will always be that question in someone's mind. But we have to remember something. Not everyone police looked at committed this crime. In fact, that gruesome honor goes to but one person. The others are the unvindicated, the innocent, left with a smudge they can never rub away because no matter how hard they try, there will always be someone out there who can't see past it. So the locals will continue to whisper, I know it was him, or of course he did it. But there's only one remedy for that. Catch the real killer. <laughs>